why are there no sales professors at Harvard? And how do you take jobs to be done beyond innovation and all the way to sales? Bob Mester tells all in his Boss 2020 talk, Demand Side Sales 101. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we are discussing sales with Bob Mesta, the legendary innovator and engineer who brought you the little arrow on your car's fuel gauge that tells you which side your petrol cap is on. Bob is a visual thinker, teacher and creator and has worked on and helped launch more than 3,500 products, services and businesses, along with being the jobs to be done guru. For most of us, sales means reciting features, benefits and pressuring customers into purchasing. It's not the nicest job to do, but it's not our fault. That's how most selling is done and has been done. There's a better way. In this talk, delivered live online at Boss USA Online 2020, Bob takes jobs to be done theory and applies it to the sales process. Happy listening. All right, so I want to talk about this book that I wrote that... To be honest, I never thought I'd ever write a book about sales. And the reality is I'm an engineer. Uh, I have electrical undergrad, mechanical and chemical masters. I've been breaking stuff for 50 years. I've been fixing stuff for 45 years, but I've been building stuff for 30 years. And as Mark says, I'm I'm known for jobs to be done and basically uh, having building that uh, methodology and theory with uh, Clay Christensen. But I'm from Detroit. and I've worked on over 3,500 different products. Everything from, uh, you know, the radar-absorbing material for a stealth bomber to Pokemon mac and cheese to base camp, and just about everything in between. And one of the things that I realized over the years is I start like so COVID hit. One of the things that I started to actually start to think about is like, what is the most? I've done seven startups, and as I did it, what's the most struggling? The thing I struggle with the most, and it always turned out to be sales. Sales is just like so hard. And so I started to just dive that. I used to pull that thread, right? So the reality is, is that my very first job selling was my second startup, which was uh, basically a countertop business in Detroit, Michigan here, where we basically built solid surface countertops and we sold them to mostly small kitchen bath stores. And, and we had an underlying new technology that we were taking to market. And so they wanted me to take it to Home Depot. I'm an engineer. I had no idea how to sell. So I figured like, how hard can that be? Right. And so part of it was the fact that I was really interested in the technology and I felt if I just knew the product, I could sell it. Right. And so I I start to think about like, how do I go sell? Well, the first thing you got to do is get a funnel. Right. And then you got to figure out how to like quote it. And then I got to actually figure out what my, what my, you know, my color schemes were and what are my features and benefits. And then I walk into Home Depot and I sell them and I sell them and they buy. And at the same time, I feel really icky. I feel like, The pit in my stomach is literally like all of a sudden like, well, everybody needs a countertop. I got to sell to everybody's a prospect. Oh my gosh. And it just got worse. And like, so we'd sell it to the buyer and then we had to go down and sell it to each store. And then you you constantly said, and it just felt like I was pushy. It was literally, I wasn't even listening to them, but I was just spouting features and benefits. And it literally felt horrible. And at some point in time, one of my colleagues came over to me and said, you know, you're not doing this right. I'm like, what do you mean? So his name was Bob Erickson. He was this huge man. He was about 
six foot ten, six foot eleven, three hundred pounds. He was a he was a lineman for the 49ers, and he he basically said, "Look, you got to stop, you know, trying to sell and just help them buy." I'm like, what do you mean, help them buy? Like, like they they got to know my stuff to buy, right? He goes, "No, no, no, you don't understand their situation. So you got you got to listen, shut up and listen." I'm like, okay. He goes, and when they say things, unpack it. What does that mean? He goes, well, they're going to say that they want it to be stylish, but you got to actually say, what does that mean? What's stylish? What's not stylish? And at the same time, you got to basically observe because what people say and what people do are different, which is all the things I knew from jobs to be done and building product. But the fact is, is for some reason, I didn't connect sales and jobs as the same thing. Again, I'm not the smartest tool or sharpest tool in the shed. So the reality is what I did is I, I actually went and then I got my team, my sales team to go and literally work at Home Depot on the weekends. So we actually would go and, and, and quote kitchens or work with the Home Depot associates and quote kitchens. And what we found was it was a mess. Like not only did customers not know what they wanted and, and the Home Depot associates didn't know how to quote it. It was just this whole, just it like, it was so hard to actually get your kitchen fixed or get your bathroom fixed. It was, it's the craziest process in the world. But by observing and looking at it, we actually learned a ton. And there's three things we actually learned that helped us scale the business. One was we actually made the quoting process easy. Everybody else quote process had to go out and be measured and do all these different things that it was like, and everybody was worried about actually, you know, if there was a problem. And what we ended up doing is actually designing it that it was one page, three steps. And if it was a problem, we had enough slush in it that we'd actually be able to cover it. And it would force us to actually be better at install, right? The second thing is I actually limited the colors, which was interesting because most people said they wanted more colors, but the reality is more colors made it harder to choose. And so what we went down to from 64 colors to 12 colors and just had to make sure that they were all different colors, they could actually eliminate the colors they didn't want and choose the colors they wanted easier. And the last thing, we basically took it, the samples, everybody had these little small samples of the countertop and they put them next to the, uh, the, the, the large doors, right? And they basically, theirs were one by one and I said, if we made ours bigger, you could actually see and understand a little bit more about it. So I just made the samples twice as big. Really, it turns out four times as big, but it's two by twos, right? But the reality, what happened was we grew the business from 500,000 to 20 million in 18 months, right? Uh, the, the downside of it is that we, again, I was the sales guy and, and, and it was about selling and all they kept doing is telling me to sell. We were uh, private equity backed and as we're building it, going and going and going. We basically ran it out of resources. So it ended up being acquired by basically Home Depot's largest supplier, Mills Pride. But the reality is I learned about this whole aspect of listening to customers. Like I knew this from jobs before because I'd been doing jobs almost 10 years before that. But the reality is, is like connecting sales, it was there. But I pretty much forgot about it, right? Fast forward, the fact is, is I've done four other startups since then, or five other startups since then, and I realized that sales is the hardest thing to do. So I was lucky enough to have four hours a quarter for 27 years with this man. He's one of my, he's one of my mentors. He's basically a, a good friend. He passed away in January. But at one point about 10 years ago, we had the conversation. I said, why are there no sales professors at Harvard? He goes, that's a really good question. And so we started to actually investigate it. And you start to realize, like, as you go through it, there's, there's actually very, 10 years ago, there were virtually no sales professors anywhere. They bring the lawyers in to teach negotiations. They bring the HR people to talk about uh, compensation packages, the way to compensate sales. But there was no sales professors. And it would be like, and it would be, if anything, it would be sales management in terms of very high, but it wouldn't be about how to sell. 
and, and you start to realize like you go to the, the startup community and they teach you how to raise money and they teach you how to build a business plan and do a business model canvas and do positioning, but nobody teaches you how to sell. It's literally the most uncomfortable thing in the world. And so the conclusion that Clay and I came to was part of it is, is that there's really a lot of practice. People, a lot, a lot of techniques. It's all about the product and techniques and closing techniques. And there's really no theory. And so schools don't teach like techniques, they teach theory. And so part of this was, well, how do I actually start to have people actually get introduced to, to sales in a different way than selling? And so I took jobs theory and I literally said, well, how do we apply that to actually selling? And so that's what I did. The interesting part is that I think that uh, Peter Drucker, who's like the, I'll say the, the, the inventor of uh, modern management basically said it a long time ago, right? He says, as much as companies really want to think they know the customer, they pretty much don't. And why customers buy and what we sell are actually not the same thing. And so all of a sudden it's like, that's the thread that we pulled, right? And so here's, here's a perfect example of it. I've got four kids, right? Four kids in five years, to be honest, they're all very close. And I'm a terrible camera a picture taker, just horrible. And so it's like, as my kids are growing, I'm like, I need a better camera. So what do I do? I go to Canon. They're the, make the best cameras in the world. First thing they do is they start to educate me about all the features about the camera. An f-stop, you know, shutter speed, uh, pixel size, uh, um, like le uh, lenses, like just all the stuff I have to learn. And then what they do is they convince me between different com you know, competitors, like, oh, I didn't even know Sony made cameras. I should be looking at maybe a Sony camera. And then I realized I can take all the pictures, but I can't actually process them. I have to actually use software to that. So I have to uh, get Photoshop and then I have to learn Photoshop. And so all this stuff ends up like, like at some point for me to take good pictures of my kids, I got to learn all this other stuff. And oh, by the way, spend a lot of money. And so the reality is, is like, and I didn't want to learn any of that. I just wanted a picture, a clear picture of my kids playing soccer. Right. And so here's the thing is there's this wall between what I call the, the supply side of the world, which is Canon and the demand side of the world, which is me trying to take a picture. And, and if you fast forward, you start to realize like somebody who actually understands the demand side, what I'm struggling with and what I want to do, it actually made it way easier. What did Apple do? They literally put a camera in the phone. How many people want to take a picture and go like, oh God, I wish I had the camera today, right? And so all of a sudden you start to realize having a camera in something else you already had, even though it was worse quality than the, you know, the, 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 the Canon camera I had, it was like, it was better than nothing, right? The second is they, they actually integrated the software to it, right? And so you start to realize the fact is, is at some point, the reason why, why you know, Apple won this is because they looked at it from the demand side of the world and they literally wanted to make me a great photographer versus the fact is, is that what, what Canon wanted to do is they wanted to build a great camera. And so part of this is to understand how do we actually go after and understand this demand side differently than the supply side, right? What happened is, as you can imagine, I mean, we all know the story is that the, the number of photos taken every year is basically, you know, exponential. I think it was what, 1.2 trillion pictures were taken last year. Ridiculous. And cameras went away. And the reality is, how is this? It's because lots of times companies end up focusing on selling their product and talking about the features and benefits of the product. And, and to be honest, more worried about competition than the consumer or the customer trying to do it. Right. So here's the two perspectives that really lay out the, the foundation of kind of how I think about sales now. Right. 
which is there's this uh, supply side, which is where there's a company and we, have, we create a product and we see everything through the world through the product. We define our customers through the product, right? But there's this other side, which is the demand side, which is where people struggle and where they actually pull things into their lives. And, and it could be a camera, but it could be a whole bunch of other things as well. And there's this wall in between. And this wall is a very thick concrete wall that's very high that we peer over and we can only see parts of both the consumer can only see parts of the, the product world and the, the product world can only see parts of the consumer, right? I grew up in the supply side of the world. I was taught that if I just built the best product, people would buy it, build it and they will come, right? And what I would do is I'd build that product and I'd, I'd define features and benefits and I'd, 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 I'd try to identify the problems that consumers have, but I'd have to peek over that wall, right? And as I peek over that wall, I'd say, well, here's the market that I'm going after. Here's the segments. Here's the personas. Here's the, here's the, the prospects. Here's the, here's the lead, right? And it's all correlation in nature. And what, what, I, what I realized is that at some point in time, I would either build it to the point where it's a great product, but nobody would buy it or people would buy it, but then they wouldn't use it. And so part of this is, is I had to actually understand the demand side. So when you switch to the demand side, it actually behaves very, very differently. It all starts with a struggling moment. Here's the thing is demand is actually created by a struggling moment. It's not created by supply as economists want us to believe, but I can actually be struggling and not have it fulfilled for many years. And then all of a sudden have something come in and fulfill it. When people struggle, that's when they want to switch. That's when they want to make progress. And so demand has to be seen from that perspective. And so the way that the demand side works is typically we're creatures of habit. We just do what we do over and over again until one of two things happens. One is we know that there's a better way or two, the fact is, is what we're doing just doesn't work anymore. And that struggling moment comes with context and a, and a reference point. I think April said it best, like they can be using Excel and you're trying to sell it against, you know, basically some uh, Microsoft product or some, uh, you know, IBM product. And the reality is like, they're not even in the same atmosphere. And so part of this is to actually understand where do people, you know, where are people coming from? And then when they're deciding to change, there's this aspect of new desired outcomes. And it's both sides of that problem. So most people talk about the problem they have that push them to it, but there's also a problem about the outcome that they want to get. And they're usually talked about in different ways. I call them asymmetrical ways, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But finally, they get to candidates. And then ultimately, they have to have higher and fire criteria why they pick it. And ultimately, the consumer, you, end up making decisions where you have to make trade-offs. You never have everything you want, ever. And so as much as we make trade-offs on the product side, the consumer is always making trade-offs on their side. And so it's understanding that side first that then helps us understand to figure it out, right? And, and ultimately, they look over that wall to say, you know, what, boy, I can't take pictures. What camera should I buy? And ultimately, there's a whole process on the supply side I have to learn in order to actually make the progress I want. So my thing is, is that sales should be based on the foundation of the demand side, right? How do people buy, right? So the, the, the name of the book is uh, Demand Side Sales, and it's like stop selling and start helping your customers make progress. And it's this notion of understanding the progress they're trying to meet. It actually helps you understand how the features and benefits connect to their lives. And a lot of times we end up talking in features and benefits that they don't understand at all and they don't really care, right? Or we actually tell them too much where they want a discount, right? So ultimately, here's the key difference is, is the reference point when we talk about sales is always the product. 
Everything is looked at through the product. When we build the product and it said, who would buy the product? When would they buy the product? Where would they buy the product? Everything comes through the product, right? But from the demand side, it's actually very different. It comes from a different point of view. It comes from this aspect of trying to say, what progress are they trying to make? It's not only who, but it's who, when, and where, and why, to then to how, what, how, and how much. And so what you start to realize is these are, these are situations that people are in that cause it. So earlier, April was talking about the whole aspect of this company where you know, the, the, at some point they're not a prospect, right? Or that you, you can disqualify them. And what I would say is you can disqualify them, but when their context changes, they'll come back. So part of it is to make sure that you understand where they are on their buying timeline, not just basically are they in or are they out? And so we'll talk about that, right? So ultimately, demand-side sales is really focused on this whole aspect of redefining the reference point to who, when, where, and why, and not what. At some point in time, sometimes you're, you're the mayonnaise on the sandwich and you're not the sandwich. And you need to understand the entire progress somebody's trying to make, not just be the, be the, be the sandwich when, when they don't think of you as the sandwich. It's a bad analogy, but it works, right? So the reality is we're creatures of habit. I've said that already. And the, and the thing is, is we don't change unless there's something going on, something, something happening to us. So the way I look at it is questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. If they don't have a question and they can't, they aren't struggling, you can talk to them all day and they have nowhere to put that and it literally bounces right off their head, right? So the reality is, is that, that you have to understand the struggling moments that cause people to get into this situation, right? And so the notion of jobs is that people don't buy products, they hire them to make progress in their life. And by doing this, we actually start to, to then look at the fact of like, there's this circumstance they're in, right? How did they get to this water's edge? How did they get here? What is going on that says, what is the reference point of where they're coming from? What's pushing them to say they need to actually move forward? At the same time, they could be at the water's edge and if they can't see the other side, this is where people just kind of complain a lot, but they don't do anything. The moment they can see the other side, it's like, oh, I need to get there. So now they have a push and a pull. The reality is like, I wanna understand what are they hoping for on the other side? Think of it this way, if that's a river, I can come up with a thousand ways to get across that river. I can teach them to swim, I can give them a boat, I can actually teach them how to sail, I can actually build a tunnel, I can build a bridge, I can, I, on and on and on. But part of it is depending on the size and the magnitude of the struggle and the reference point and the context that they're in and the outcomes they seek, it can all actually has helps me shape the product and helps me sell the product, right? So by understanding that first, that's actually where I need to actually begin the sales process, right? So the second, there's two key frameworks to us uncovering that. One is these forces, right? We talk about the push of the situation. We talk about the pull of the new solution. We talk about the anxiety of the new solution, things that they're worried about. And then we talk about the habits that they have to give up. And ultimately we look at people trying to make progress as a system and those forces have to line up where the top two forces have to actually be greater than the bottom two forces. So it's one thing they can be pushed and they could have pull, but there's so much anxiety about what to do in the new space. Like, well, oh my gosh, so many people have to learn this and it's always totally new and we don't have the time and we're really busy. Like there's a whole bunch of anxiety. How do you actually reduce anxiety as opposed to add more features? And so part of it is to use this framework to do it. But the more important framework is to actually understand the timeline. The craziest part about this is it doesn't matter if you're actually buying a pack of gum or a new cell phone or some software or some CRM or literally 
to be honest, switching churches, you follow the same process. There's a first thought, right? There's like, whatever you're doing right now isn't good enough. And that creates the space in the brain for at least for you to start to think about it. And from that, you go to passive looking. Passive looking is where you're learning. You actually don't know what to do, but you're going through life. But now that you have the space, the stuff kind of falls in it, right? And then something else happens that causes you to go to active looking where you have to either spend time, energy, knowledge, learning, something to basically go figure out what you're going to do. It's big enough now that you have to go do something about it. And then once you start to see possibilities, there's the second part of deciding where you've got to make trade-offs of what you're really going to do. Right. And then from that, you lock in what quality is and what value is. And now it's about basically how well do we deliver on it, which is basically uh, consuming. And then from there, it's ongoing use. So what I did is, is think it was the dominoes that have to fall in order for, for people to get to your product. The key here is this is not theoretical in terms of like uh, idealistic. This is actually about understanding the real journey that people take and the trade-offs they're willing to make. So this does not happen in the conference room. This happens talking to consumers about progress they're trying to make, right? Ultimately, let's see, hold on. What I wanna be able to do is talk about, and, and I'm gonna turn this into a system, but from the supply side, we have the sales funnel. But let's be clear, nothing ever gets out of the funnel. A funnel, there's only one direction, which is down, right? In the timeline, something can happen. I can actually go backwards. I can go from active looking or even deciding to say, oh, well, something happened in the context, I'm back to passive looking. And so part of this is to understand where people are in the timeline. And so taking the timeline and breaking it into systems, what do people need to hear? What do people do? What do they say when they're in each one of these things? And trying to get somebody from first thought to deciding doesn't work. They have to go through basically each of the phases. Right? And so part of this is actually understanding kind of what happens at each one of these stages. Right? So let me, let me just walk through it quickly. One, first thought. So I'm sure there's more, but I've only found four ways to create a first thought. Right? So one is to ask somebody a question. And oh, by the way, don't answer it. Right? A lot of times we ask a question and then we answer it right away. So like, for example, I've done a lot of work in, in furniture, right? So, so like, you know, uh, do you need a new mattress? No. The question has to be is like, how well are you sleeping? Do you feel exhausted? Right? And sh just shut up. Part of it is the question creates that hole in the brain that also then makes the gut kind of ferment. You go like, that's a really good, God, it's not good. I know it's not good. Right? The other thing is to give them a new metric, right? Or tell them a story or state the obvious. You know, how many bottles of Zequel are you going to have before you realize it might be the mattress, right? Something along the lines of basically getting them down to start in the path. Passive looking. Passive looking is this aspect of framing the problem. In most cases, you know, again, April said it. I love April. So April said it the best. I think that, that they only have the language of the problem when they begin. And most of them don't actually understand. So when you feed them with a fire hose about all your specifications and everything you do, you're actually assuming they're smart. And so a lot of people actually drop out because they actually, you don't teach them or don't help them learn what they need to do to one, reframe the problem or see the problem for yourself and start to think about the solution language. And if they can't adopt the solution language, they can't actually get there. And we forget about that. And oh, by the way, this is marketing and sales together, working together to help consumers make progress. This is not marketing's job or sales job, it's both. They need to work together to do it. 
right? Active looking. Active looking is this weird space that I actually really, I get uncomfortable with, but at the same time, it's, it's like, it's magic wanding. It's this notion of, hey, does it do this? Oh, it'd be great if it had that. Oh my God. And there's no connection between all of those things and price and timing is like, does, you know, it's just where people like they're, it's almost like playground, right? And this is where basically people will actively look and they'll, they'll start wishing for things. Oh, if I wish, I wish you had this feature. I wish you had that feature, right? And so part of this is we confuse that with what they really want, right? Which really comes in the next session. But part of it is here is to show them many different things so they can see possibilities but the big point is really to get them to deciding. Deciding is where they have to make trade-offs. Deciding is where they actually like to, to show people three things is really important because what happens is when they have three things, the first thing they do is they eliminate one of the three. They don't pick the one, they eliminate the one. And then what they do is they don't compare the two that are left to each other. They compare the two that are left to the one that's out. So they actually eliminate themselves to a, to a solution, right? And so part of this is to understand how people actually behave when they make decisions and what are the trade-offs that they have to make. Most people don't wanna frame the trade-offs, but the reality is, is like, if you don't help them frame the trade-offs, a lot of the time they actually don't make any decision because they can't actually, they don't understand how to make it. And so part of this is actually understanding how to make, help them make the decision, help them make the trade-offs and how to lock in that satisfaction. First use, first use is critical. So again, I think the onboarding people actually have a lot of this right, but the fact is, is nobody's connected like the entire process together. But this is where you have to actually have people make, feel like they're making the progress that they're doing. A lot of times people talk about progress as like, oh, in 10 months, you'll be able to do this. But how do you know that you're making progress towards that in the first week? What are the things that make them feel like they're having progress? How do they know that they're being successful? Those are all the things that happen in first use. And then at some point, ongoing use is where all of a sudden new struggling moments happen, right? And that actually, new struggling moments can actually cause you to actually go to the beginning of the process again and say like, ooh, maybe I should be changing something or you should be monitoring it to actually add features that address why people leave, right? And so by rethinking the sales process into the basically how do customers make progress and our job is to educate them along the way, it, it actually helps us see sales in a very different way. So the, the phrase I always say is context creates value and contrast creates meaning, which is at the core of kind of how we think about demand side sales. So let me give you an example. This is uh, Steve Robert. He is, uh, he is a uh, serial entrepreneur. This is, I think his third. Um, he's in the FinTech space and uh, he's based here in Detroit. Uh, beautiful Detroit, by the way. It's, it's actually getting much, much better than what the press would say. And, and in it is basically my, one of my co-founders actually, uh, he's, he has now, his, uh, he had twins. Uh, he had, so he's got three kids now and he couldn't really kind of do the business we were doing anymore. And he wanted to go build something. So he joined up with them with Kyle and uh, Derek. And we started to basically talk about this process where Derek is head of sales and, or I'm sorry, Kyle's head of sales and Derek is head of uh, marketing, right? So what is Autobooks? Autobooks sells to banks. They sell basically almost an e-commerce platform. So literally you can do things like Square and, and PayPal at the banks, right? But the thing is, is that they're really focused on small business. Think of the people who tried to use PayPal, but couldn't. Or think of the people who like painters, 
uh, lawn lawnmower, like the, the I'll say the very very simple side of the business set. And what they do is they build this platform that helps them get paid. And it's a very very uh, I'll say simple app that actually works all through SMS, and it works you know basically takes them to the website that then goes into their account. And one of the things that's really important is that money that gets deposited in their account is now available way faster and at less cost than anybody else. So like if you go to PayPal, I think they hold it for up to seven days, right? And it's other places they hold it less, but it's partly the fact is like, this is your bank, we can do it at your bank. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a decent product. So one of the things I did is I just asked Kyle, what's your biggest struggling moment? Like what, like as you're doing the sales, they're, they're uh, about two years into the process and then basically he goes, you know, it, it, it's, it's the demo. The demo's just killing me. I'm like, what do you mean the demo? He goes, well, he goes, the fact is, is like we, we have everything lead up to the demo. So we have advertising, we have landing pages, we get chemo campaigns, we trickle, we basically get book bookings and we basically book everybody to do a demo. But it's like, when we do the demo, it's just, it's not right. So every 90 days, we're re rethinking the demo. And so it's just this, this aspect of, of trying to like, what's the right demo? And so as, I, as, I, as we're talking about the demo, right? And I'm looking at it, I'm looking through the timeline. I, I, I talked to him about the timeline. I'm like, so, you know, the demo was designed for helping to close people. How do we close people? And so what I, what I really asked is, but where are they in their timeline? He goes, what do you mean? I said, you have a sales funnel, but they have a buying timeline. Where are they? Are they in just, are they in passive looking? Like, I just need to know what's possible or I just, I don't know enough to actually pull the team together. And you're saying like, I'm not gonna do a demo unless you pull 50 people together that, that I can demo it to everybody. And I'm like, I don't know enough if I should, right? Or it's like, you're at some point, you're showing them something too high. And so they're just redoing it. And so as we started to talk through it, I basically came back and said, look, a demo and passive looking is typically gonna be very small. He goes, oh yeah, we get those. So like one or two people, they're typically like, they'll always say the word I, I wanna do this, I need to know that, right? And then all of a sudden that spurs them to actually have a second demo, right? Which is this notion of, of uh, active looking, like I'm gonna pull a bunch of people in, let's show people what this can do for us. And then they'll, they'll end up doing a third demo, right? The thing is, is the unrealistic expectation of having one demo to do it all didn't work. So what we did is we set off and said, look, we're going to actually create three really different demos. And what we realized, if there is not a lot of energy after demo one, the likelihood of them actually using it is zero. And so we actually have to get them to the point where, and to be honest, it's okay to be impassive looking because when the context changes, they'll then move to active looking. And so what we did is we basically designed these demos, like think of this as, as like at a conference, right? And it's literally tell stories, ask them more about what's going on at their company, ask them why they would even stop with it. Tell them about, tell them two or three different ways in which you helped other people make progress. You don't need to get into specific features and benefits, but you need to teach them the language. And if they go like, oh man, this is great. Like I'd like to get other people involved. Then you start to do the second demo. But the second demo now is like, we need to have marketing there. We need to have uh, uh, IT there. We need to, and we'll do 90 minutes that walk people through it, right? And oh, by the way, we'll, we'll gather all the different things and we'll come back with three scenarios. And then the fourth is really, they would call it the contract, but it's really a fourth demo, which is or a third demo, which really then talks to them about kind of, here's three different options to get started. And they're positioned in a way to force them to make trade-offs. We can do this very quickly, but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's basically a generic label that goes under auto books and we can actually install it in your system, but we can do that in four weeks. 
we can white label it and put your brand on it and do this and this and this, but that's actually going to take 12 weeks, right? And it's going to cost you more money. Where do you want to go? And so part of it is, is by understanding the value they want and the jobs they're in, they can actually figure it out. So here's the crazy part, right? As, as, as prospects come in, right? They actually understand the three different major scenarios, the three different jobs by which people, you know, uh, buy their product or buy their service from a bank perspective. And then we have a timeline for each of them. And so as somebody comes in, we, the first thing is there's four or five questions we ask to say, like, why are you reaching out today? And as we do it, we can actually figure out which job they're in based on the scenario. And then we start to ask them, where are they in the timeline? And then it's about the salesperson's job to manage them through that timeline to turn them into a customer, right? And so by thinking about it that way, they've changed the way they've done things. And here's the thing, so now they do three demos, right? Which is kind of crazy, right? But the reality is like from, from first contact to close is almost half of what they used to do, right? The other part is they have two times the lead conversion because in a lot of cases they either tried to close them too early or they actually didn't understand their scenario enough and they were talking way too much about, about um, kind of uh, uh, you know, the closing part of everything, right? The last part is that the bonus that they got is that when they're now launching, right, and doing it, it's actually faster and less work on the back end because everybody's involved in the process. So like if people aren't willing to, to get the team together and, and active looking, the fact is, is, and they'll say, well, I don't know enough. We're going to put them back in passive looking and figure out how to actually give them enough to sell it, to bring everybody together. But now that we have everybody together in part of the buying process, everything else moves faster. And so now they're actually having more and more success. Right. And, and by the way, and that's Steve smiling because the valuation is going through the roof. Right. The traditional view of sales and marketing is that marketing does their part and they hand the leads off and then sales does their part and hands it off. But when you start to think about it is I need all systems like on in onboarding when I'm in first use, I need marketing's help. Right. And, and when I'm doing continuous use, I need, I need actually marketing's help. The thing is, is we've tried to actually build these narrow bands because at some point it's, 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 it's ultimately about functionality that, that we say that the function of marketing does this, but ultimately we need to align everybody to the progress customers are trying to make. And so, for example, at Intercom, what they've done is they've, they literally say that they have a sales team, marketing team, and a, a, a customer success team that's all geared around each job. So once somebody talks about what they are, is, is they all work together in one space, right? Long and short is what business people think they know about the customer is more likely wrong than right, right? And customers rarely buy what business thinks it's selling, right? And so ultimately, what we want to do is, is start to think about and at least complement the way we think about sales with the demand side of how people buy. And at some point start to at least educate people about this side of the market, because for me and jobs to be done, it's literally helped both product, it's helped strategy, it's helped marketing and it's helped sales, it's helped customer support. Like it helps all parts of the business. But the reality is, is when we start from the demand side or the supply side, we end up just, um, averaging our way to, the, to, to doing things and it doesn't work, at least for me it doesn't. So one, find struggling moments and help people overcome them. This isn't about you eliminating struggling moments, this is about you helping them make progress. Focus on the progress that they're trying to make, right? What is their sign of like when they want a feature, what, what, what does that feature represent to them in terms of progress? Why do they want it? What's it, what's, what's it implied to them, right? 
The second part is to say, where are they in the timeline? Where they are is actually is, is a very big function of what they're willing to learn, what they're willing to do, and how they're willing to actually act. And your job is to actually walk them through the process of how they buy. What's so strange is that is at, at AutoBooks, they thought it was going to be really uncomfortable to say, so where are you in the buying process? And they'll, people will ask, well, what do you mean by that? And they explain it. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're here. And people will self-identify exactly where they're at. And then they do some stuff. But the reality is like they were so uncomfortable to ask because the way they used to ask it is, where are you in our sales process, which they don't really care about, <laughs> right? Just a simple flip of the words, right? So the last part is, is focus on the buying language. Like again, April says this all the time is like, we need to unpack those features and benefits down to why those features and benefits are important to them in that context. What's their reference point, right? And the last thing is help them make trade-offs. This whole notion of trade-offs is, is like, I'm not a very big fan of anything in, called like the ideal customer or the ideal product or the ideal product. None of it really exists. And, and to be honest, it's, it's in some cases, it's very detrimental. I feel like the fact is we need to be able to identify what are the trade-offs that we have to make and they have to make and how do we overlap it as opposed to trying to constantly work for ideal because we never get to ideal. We never have enough time. We never have enough money. And to be honest, the ideal is different for everybody. And so it's just a really bad notion to me, right? So ultimately, just help your customers make progress. Thanks. Look at that, Mark. I'm five, six, seven minutes early. Oh, I need a cocktail now. <laughs> Questions? We have, have a, a cocktail. Have a cocktail. Oh, yeah, there we go. There's no vodka in this, but I can put it. Oh, wow. Um, thank you. <laughs> so many, so many questions, um, so many insights, so many things flying around. Um, there were a couple of things that kind of came up in the chat. There was one uh, from Alex uh, about uh, something you were talking about. He was saying, is this a discovery call? And are yeah. you saying there's a difference between your approach and a discovery call? Alex, are you there? Yeah, but that's pretty much the question. Yeah. So, so my thing is, is, is where, where uh, if I, I'm, uh, I got to share, I'm, hold on a second. So here's the thing is a discovery call, right? What is, like, like, let's think about this for a second. Where is the discovery? It's like, again, if where are they in the time? So part of it is when you start to look at this, there's a discovery call just to figure out which job they're in. Right. Yep. And then there's a discovery call to figure out where they are on the timeline. And those could be one call. They could be two calls. But part of it is to realize what energy, like what put them to actually reach out to you? What made them say like, boy, I want to set up a, uh, here's the thing is nothing is random. If we believe things are random, we just wait. It is literally the laziest concept in the world to be say that things are random. It's, it's like when somebody comes to me and says, yeah, this is just a random process. I literally fire them on the spot because it's like, it's just, you're never going to get it because people don't randomly buy. And so to me, if you're getting them on the phone, they picked up the phone for a reason. Why? Right. And they, again, they could be all the way down in, in, in buying. Like I've already got two other quotes. I need a third quote. Great. Now I got to get a, I got to get a lot of background. <laughs> but if they're literally like, like, I don't know, we're looking for things to do. We've got, we've got budget set aside. These other two things fell through. We've got some extra money. We're looking to actually spend it. Like 
help me understand what you can do to help us. And that's where you've got to say, you got to not actually fall for that bait. You got to go like, so tell me what you've tried. Tell, help me understand your context. Help me understand what worked. Help me understand what hasn't worked. This is all about them. So to me, the thing is, is we're so worried about the product that when we do a discovery call, we don't actually dig deep enough into their side. We wait to hear the three or four trigger words and then we dive into our pitch. <laughs> right? Yeah, it definitely happens. Yep. And so to me, this is actually way more about them and, and in some cases way more uncomfortable about them than most people want to go. And what I would say is the more you invest here, the, here's the thing is when somebody's not qualified, what you do is you basically say, well, when this and this and this happen, we'll be ready to do business. You can actually pre-signal them to say, look, when, when this goes awry and this happens and you start to grow at this rate, like this is a perfect place for us to help. So in their passive looking, you can actually plug in your criteria and then you can actually just follow up to say, has this happened yet? Now they're just checking in on things you've already said, as opposed to like, hey, how can I help? Right? Part of this is to understand the, that progress. Sorry, I, I'm a little long-winded, I apologize. No, that's great. Mike Austin, you've got a question. I'm picking some from the chat. Yeah, uh, just so you know, I can't read, so I'm dyslexic. You talk about the book in some way, so this is, this is very helpful for you to ask. So. No worries, thank you. Um, so um, with the sales model, if um, clients self-identify as passive looking, then we, we kind of do this at the moment. So we, we put people onto a nurture stream and we try to give them valuable content and that kind of stuff. And then we get back to them maybe after a few months. What we've had a few times though is um, competitors come in, they then engage that prospect with a very aggressive sales process. Um, and close them. You know, they offer them a free trial or they offer them a um, you know, cheap, cheap service or whatever it is uh, before we then get back to them. So how, how would you deal with that kind of situation? So here's the thing is, is part of the job, part of your requirements in passive looking is to say, well, I'm not really, is you actually haven't actually dug deep enough to understand the real pain of why they're doing it. And the reason why somebody else got there is they actually were able to dig deeper and figure out like, well, how much you're really losing because of this? Like, well, I don't know. Well, let me give you some examples. Let me tell you some other stories. And so part of it is, is you're losing the battle because you're just letting them self-identify as opposed to verifying their self-identification and making sure that you're educating them along the way. It's, it's again, I keep going back to, to April, but it's April's whole point of like, how do you educate them with something new that gets them to actually start to move forward? The, the, the role is to actually move people through the timeline, not just to actually wait for them to react. How do you help them cause movement? I don't know if that helped or did I even answer that question? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you said, I'm, I'm, I'm just um, sort of thinking about, um, about that, trying to process that. Because um, so, that sounds kind of like, like a more traditional sort of rather pushier sales approach, but- No, no, no so the thing is the pushy salesperson is talking about the product. Right. The thing is, is what you want to be able to do is, is talk, help that, like teach them, like, for example, give them a new metric. Right. So most people talk about lead conversion. Right. And my thing is, is how do we talk about the number of leads that are actually qualified to even buy? Or when we talk about what's the time, like, how do you actually give people new metrics so they actually will do something about it? The best example I have of that is the moment that people talked about losing weight is one thing. But then the moment we start talking about steps, 
it changes everybody saying, oh, I got to do 10 more steps. I can go do 10 more steps. I don't know how to lose 10 more pounds, right? And so this aspect of understanding how to give them metrics and help them actually understand how good they're doing. There's a whole bunch of things and you're not pushy because you're a teacher, right? The pushy sales okay, people are literally, yeah. here's the thing is, I think the, the ridiculous part to me is that the church of finance would tell us that we have to actually close something by the end of the quarter because we made a commitment to make these numbers by the end of the quarter. And the people that we have who are buying on their own timeline are willing to pay full price, but we are offering a 20% discount because we need to meet our numbers. And we actually just devalued our product 20%. Ridiculous. That's, a, that, that's just unacceptable to me. And the, the fact is, is that we, we run it as normal, which then changes the behavior of the entire industry to say, expect discounts all the time. So what do we do? We just mark up the price and then we actually then offer the discount all the time. But it's not actually a real feature. Sorry. Right, thank you. Ron Booth. Mark and I are cut from the same cloth, so sometimes we end up on the wrong, the wrong track. <laughs> Ryan Booth. Hi, uh, great talk. I had a question related to the length of demos. If yeah. you had any thoughts on the length of demo and does that vary depending on where a buyer is in his timeline? Do you tend to get more time with a you? Yeah, so, so what's interesting is that, and to be honest, we, we, we didn't think we could get more demos. Like we didn't know we'd get more time. But the thing is, is like the first demo, they're expecting to see the product that we spent, uh, uh, I think, the way uh, Kyle and, and uh, uh, Derek set it up was they, they ended up taking the hour and 50 minutes were all about their situation and 10 minutes was the product. So it was just enough to get it in. And then when they came back, it was like, well, before we come back, like if, can you invite marketing and IT and the other people along the way? And if they couldn't do it, they'd actually then do a, a, a shorter, smaller thing to actually prepare them to go invite people. But that next demo with everybody else was actually then 90 minutes. So I don't know if it has to be that timely, but I, what I would say is it's dependent on the context. But what they did is like, they might do an overview for all of it and then 30 minutes with marketing and 30 minutes with IT afterwards, but it's 90 minutes demo. And if they're not pushing for it, then what they found is that, that by them trying to push for it, they never had the energy to actually implement. Okay, thank you. Are there, just to follow up on that, are there specific signals you look at when you're doing a trade-off demo that tell you you've done your job in convincing them that you're not the one being traded yeah, off? Yeah, so, so, yeah, so in the, in the third demo, one of the things that's important is that they can very quickly, so this is where you actually give them a bad option. It's very well designed, but it's an option you know they don't want. So they can quickly, because if they actually look at all three of them, if they're too close and they're all too good, they're gonna be like, I don't know how to decide. You want one of them to be, sorry, I'm, I'm using my document camera. Oh, that's not the right thing, yeah, anyway. You know, you want it, the, the one that they throw out first is then the one that they're, they're going to is becomes the reference point. And so you want to make sure that they're different enough, but that necessarily you like it's, it's almost like people would say you're trying to, to have them. It, it's like an albatross or something that, you know, they're not going to buy, but it actually helps them because they start to look at different feature sets than trying to compare them side by side. And, and so the other thing is, is what I would say is most people have to go get three, not because it's a it's required, but it's they actually need that context or that uh, contrast to actually create the meaning of what it is so they can build the case to other people why they did it. And it mostly is about what the other person doesn't do. It's not about what you do. Okay, thank you. Yep. Brilliant. Uh, Melissa Johnson. Thanks, Bob. I, I'm 
um, pleasantly surprised by your talk. Not that uh, anything biased. It's just I'm from the product side, and I am just so engaged with this right now. And so uh, thank you for that. Well, um, real, my question. Real, I'm, a product, I'm a product person too, and it literally got. I end up having to go to the sales side. So this is this is like the products, the product person slant on how to do sales. And to be honest, I've sold a lot of stuff and a lot of different industries. And so it, to me, it's it's also time tested. Great. So I'm thinking of the one slide where you had demand side sales bills alignment and focus. And on the yeah. top, you had the the uh, demand side on top and yep. the bottom, you have the supply side in the bottom, yep. you know, talking about they, they work with each other throughout. Do you have any suggestions on how to do that or best practices? Yeah, so, 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 um, so the guy, the, uh, the, the people at AutoBooks, what they did is, is in some cases, they actually built teams and then people go on sales calls and they make the salespeople be part of the implementation. So part of it is, is that instead of trying to give them so much focus to do one thing, they're actually enabling them to have some slack so they can be part of the entire process. And, and I think um, April talked about when she would basically build a new pitch for marketing, she'd go on sales calls. The, the, most marketers don't even do that. They don't even know what it's like to be, you know, like, like the notion of being a general manager of a, of a, of, of a, of a company you're selling to, like that they, they might know a little bit about the demographics, but they don't know what it's, it feels like. And so a lot of cases, getting junior marketers to actually be in the seat and understand selling versus marketing is very important. So to me, it's, 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 it's team. And to be honest with, with, with now with COVID, it's enabled people to just hop on and actually start to ask questions and be part of it where they don't have to travel with everybody. That's exactly it. I could see my sales team freaking out that the marketer would ask a question, but that's probably something we could get well, over with. But, but you give, but here's the thing, if you give some rules. So the, one of the first things we do is we start with like, let's go talk to somebody who recently bought and let's just get the story of what caused them to say today's the day they bought. And what, what happens is it's never the salesperson's story. There's so much behind the scenes that went on that we don't even know about that actually are things we could have helped with that, that we didn't, we didn't want to uncover that if we actually did four or five other things, we could have actually sold it faster or easier. And so part of it is we start with the postmortems of, of uh, you know, four or five past sales that then start to frame the jobs that we're trying to get done that then, then, then they build where the unknowns are. So, you know, uh, to me, the other part is what don't we know and, and how do we actually know it? So I use product now, like the product notion of unknowns to bringing into sales and marketing. Totally agree. Just as a side note too, we've recognized the, the, the value of listening on sales conversations. So we actually um, have uh, con or purchased a solution that allows us to, to record our sales. It's all integrated with HubSpot and everything. It's, it's actually pretty cool. We just started using it. So now we can, um, we can listen to any sales call because I totally 100% agree with you. The story that you get from the sales rep is not exactly what is stated by the customer. Well, uh, it's their view. <laughs> well, the other part is they're going to say words. They're going to say words. Well, well, we need something more secure. What the hell does that mean? Like there's, there's 42 different ways to make something more secure. Like which one is it? Is it, is it a set of them? And so what happens is we go, oh, we're secure. We got to, and then we just dive into what secure is, but we actually don't actually understand what their definition of secure is. So it's, it, it's, it's all that. So my thing is that you listen, I always try to find the words that are so abstract that it can have multiple definitions from a product perspective. It's like, okay, this is a word. We need to go unpack that word. So like either I want to go back to that customer or every time you ask security, let's ask about like, 
what is unsecure? What does not secure mean? Because at some point they can't tell you what security is, but they can tell you what security is not. Totally agree. Okay. Thank you. Yep. David right. Carter. Hi, Bob. Uh, this is a fabulous talk. Thank you. Um, I love the t-shirt. When you are, <laughs> when you're trying to educate the customers after listening to what they're interested in, yep. uh, would you recommend that that learning, uh, customer learning, be more effortful or easier for them to go through the go through the path? Where do you find more buy-in? So this is what's interesting is I, so it's a great question. And uh, I might cop out by saying like, it depends on the context. Cause I actually think the more effort people put into it, the more, the, the more they're actually bought into the process. And when we make things too easy, it actually causes them to actually make bad decisions. But I think that there's some where, where you can't actually get your foot in the door if you're not easy and if it's too much work. So I think it's a, it's, it's a judgment call on basically how big is the problem and how much do they really want to solve it and what's the urgency behind the problem and the risk of the old solution. So to me, it's, 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 it's really contextual in that, in that aspect. I don't think there's a generalized question or generalized answer to that. Thank you. I, I, I'll say this. I'm not a big fan of free. I think free trial... <laughs> is like too much or like it's just it doesn't it doesn't enable people to actually be committed in a way that they can see the functionality of something yeah i just in my life experience uh, when people put in effort you act they feel yes. more invested in the piece and i was just wondering how much effort you can actually expect oh. from your clients oh so here's the thing is what i would say is the more energy what i would call social emotional and functional energy of the push is basically where you're going to see where they're going to actually put more energy in to figure out the progress. So in a lot of cases, making them aware of forces that they don't know, or make them aware of things that they, 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 they can do that they can't do now will actually then enable them to have the energy to, to have the diligence. Or even reflect their, uh, their, yep. their energy back at them so that they actually know what they should be focusing on or what exactly. they think they're focusing on. Exactly. The, the other part is, is in a lot of cases, people are very skeptical to say like they, they want to close why they have people there. But, but if you do this right, what you end up doing is, is leaving them and it's almost like it's festering or it's mulling or it's fermenting inside them. And the, the notion is the energy just gets greater. And so if you do this right, you actually don't like the, like one of my favorite things is, is to say at some point to go like, I'm, you know, I'm just not sure this is a fit. And then they start to tell me all the reasons why it's a fit. And when they say it, it's truth. <laughs> when I say it, I'm selling. Levy, you had a great question. Levy? My friend. He's from Romania, so. Okay, so yeah, it's working. last year. Yeah, so uh, yeah, what, I, I just want you to clarify on pushing them through the timeline versus helping them every step of the way, because I think yeah. there's a big difference between the two. Yes. So, so part of it is, is, is you're not pushing them, they're pushing themselves. So that's the first thing. The other part is some people try to, try to create pull with their features and benefits to pull people through. And the reality is that features and benefits also create anxiety. And so part of this is it's the balance of all of this to actually understand their context. It's not about, it's not about making them afraid. 
It's more about being able to actually understand what, what are the things that, that are motivating them to make progress. And so you're not, you're not trying to, I think most, most salespeople are either trying to actually attract, like, like talk about pull, like you could do all these things. They might talk a little bit about the problem, but they don't talk about the problem at a level that is meaningful to the customer. And part of this is unpacking what is the meaningful things that are really relevant to them right then and there. Yeah, so it's, it's all of them that you have to look at. Right, because there's a risk of forcing them too quickly through the timeline and just right. it's, it's just not the right time. And, to... and then, then they have buyer's remorse. Right. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org. Don't forget, you can get regular updates from Business of Software via the newsletter. Sign up for free at businessofsoftware.org updates.